the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Inauguration Day edition of The Dan Proft Show, and uh, one administration ends and the other begins. It's the circle of political life, Simba. Before we get to some of the coverage of the incoming administration, which is as treacly as you might expect, perhaps uh, new highs in terms of uh, sugar coating, President Trump's uh, farewell address yesterday, as well as his comments at, at Andrews Air Force Base today before he uh, departed for Mar-a-Lago. First, uh, you know, Trump just uh, giving sort of the top line with respect to his four years. My fellow Americans, four years ago, we launched a great national effort to rebuild our country, to renew its spirit, and to restore the allegiance of this government to its citizens. In short, we embarked on a mission to make America great again for all Americans. As I conclude my term as the 45th President of the United States, I stand before you truly proud of what we have achieved together. We did what we came here to do, and so much more. We did what we came here to do. Also, uh, while Trump didn't attend the inauguration, of course, and I think that was a mistake, but he didn't do it. Talked enough about that. It's past post. He did, according to the New York Post, offer a note that he left behind in the tradition of that. Don't know what it says. <laughs> I know you're probably letting your imagination run wild with uh, comical things that could have he could have inscribed and left for Joe Biden. But I suspect that the comment that he made during his fairly well address is probably a reflection on the note he left behind for Joe Biden, which I'm sure will be reported on at, uh, at some point. This week, we inaugurate a new administration and pray for its success in keeping America safe and prosperous. We extend our best wishes, and we also want them to have luck, a very important word. Uh, Best wishes, so it's sort of the pro forma uh, gracious thing to do, and President Trump was gracious in his remarks both yesterday and today. I I thought it was interesting to note, just thinking about uh, legacy impact, what needs to be carried forward within Republican ranks, whether it's uh, Trump leading that charge or somebody else. His greatest accomplishment, what he thinks is his greatest legacy. We talked about this a bit yesterday. I gave you uh, my suggestion of what I thought it was, and uh, I'm happy to report that uh, the president endorsed my suggestion. Take a listen. I took on the tough battles, the hardest fights, the most difficult choices, because that's what you elected me to do. Your needs were my first and last unyielding focus. This, I hope, will be our greatest legacy. Together, we put the American people back in charge of our country. We restored self-government. We restored the idea that in America, 
No one is forgotten because everyone matters and everyone has a voice. We fought for the principle that every citizen is entitled to equal dignity, equal treatment, and equal rights because we are all made equal by God. Everyone is entitled to be treated with respect, to have their voice heard, and to have their government listen. You are loyal to your country, and my administration was always loyal to you. Uh, I took on the tough fights, the fights you sent me to take on. He even used the word I used yesterday, and I promise you I didn't write his remarks, unyielding. And he was. Um, The loyalty being a two-way street, I know some people are probably thinking, well, he wasn't very loyal to perhaps his top loyalist and Mike Pence at the end, and I agree. Uh, We've talked about it with Victor Davis Hanson on this show. I've talked about it in terms of offering my own view that he owed Pence a public apology. He was uh, gracious and thankful to Mike Pence and so many others who were part of his administration and supportive of his his administration and his remarks. But, um, you know, his conduct definitely um, diminished him in the eyes of so many, including many of his supporters, his conduct towards the end. It's unfortunate because of all that was accomplished, as he said, coming there to do what they did uh, and taking on the tough fights. He also offered a, a perspective remark that I thought was a key as well, thinking about um, the greatest danger as he turns over the reins of power, uh, President Trump describing it thusly. But the greatest danger we face is a loss of confidence in ourselves, a loss of confidence in our national greatness. A nation is only as strong as its spirit. We are only as dynamic as our pride. We are only as vibrant as the faith that beats in the hearts of our people. No nation can long thrive that loses faith in its own values, history, and heroes. For these are the very sources of our unity and our vitality. And uh, I talked to um, a lot of listeners about this as well, the idea that he instilled renewed confidence in people. You know, you can't lose faith in our institutions. You can't lose faith in foundational American values. These have to be the values have to be the things that punctuate our lives and inform our institutions if we're going to have a free society. Uh, So I thought uh, President Trump's remarks were well considered and well delivered. Uh, And, um, you know, the the, uh, fare thee well is is tough. Uh, And I think it's tough for a lot of people to hear, particularly given what uh, the country will now face and uh, the full reversal just as quickly as President Biden and uh, House and Senate Democrats can do it of so many of the Trump policies that sent uh, that provided the basis for his candidacy and the success of his administration. I fought for you. I fought for your family. I fought for our country. Above all, I fought for America and all it stands for. And that is safe, strong, proud, and free. I go from this majestic place with a loyal and joyful heart, an optimistic spirit, and a supreme confidence that for our country and for our children, the best is yet to come. It's, you know, if he frankly would have had a little bit more of that optimism throughout, um, although he did in the rallies. I mean, that was not inconsistent with the messaging at uh, his rallies down the stretch. But a little bit more of that optimism and a little bit less trust in some of the institutional interests that he was sent to Washington to uh, take on. 
particularly with respect to COVID policy, perhaps things would have been different. I don't want to do too much in terms of recriminations and Monday morning quarterbacking, but there are lessons to take away that should inform our understanding of things going forward as much of these policy choices with which we are afflicted in the several states persist beyond Trump's presidency. I also thought uh, this moment was interesting. Now, this is after he and the family headed over to uh, Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, Trump saying uh, he's basically uh, the, the, the sort of the line that I suggested he steal from Lost in Translation uh, back in early December in a piece I penned for amgreatness.com. I have to be leaving, but I won't let that come between us. The things that we've done have been just incredible, and I couldn't have done them done it without you. So just a goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. Well, we'll be interested to see what form that takes. One uh, note uh, before we, we go to break and we pick up this conversation with uh, Army combat veteran Kurt Mills, particularly as it relates to the how the National Guard was treated in the uh, run up to today's inauguration. I, I just the, the, the media. I mean, this is you know, it's all all these you know newsmen and women and journalists, please. This is like the Melissa and Joan Rivers show on all these cable networks. It is in, it's insufferable to listen to. So vapid. And uh, the winner of the contest to be the most vapid, the most over the top, the most ridiculous David Shalane, the political director of CNN, the political director of CNN, listened to this characterization of um, the uh, setup last evening to today's inauguration. There's still some uh, tinkering going on with the inaugural address, but his aides are, are, have made really clear it's not like he's trying to ignore or paper over uh, either what happened at the Capitol two weeks ago or what we've been through uh, throughout four years of the Trump presidency. And the contrast on display tonight was so stark. I mean, those lights that are that are just shooting out from the Lincoln Memorial uh, along the reflecting pool. It, I look; it's like almost extensions of Joe Biden's arms embracing America. It was a moment where the new president came to town and sort of convened the country in this moment of remembrance. I, I mean, <laughs> yes. Uh, David Shalane's soaring rhetoric just sent a thrill up my leg. It's just it's these these people, the inconsequential Biden who spent 50 years in D.C. mainly hanging out, was known primarily for filling his mouth with shoe leather anytime he opened it. Now he's Christ Gandhi uniting the nation. I mean, it really is the press corps is farcical on a Shakespearean level, and uh, David Shalane is right at the top of that list. This is Dan Prof. And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up next to you This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show from Trump's Fair the Well yesterday. He had this to say about America's standing in the world. We restored American strength at home and American leadership abroad. The world respects us again. Please don't lose that respect. Of course, this was uh, attendant to his thanks to military, to law enforcement around the country, and also on the way out the door, the administration, that is, 
Mike Pompeo's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and the designation of China as a state that has committed genocide against Uyghur Muslims. I like that. I like what Trump did. I I also like the uh, ban on the importation of products produced by slave labor, the million-plus Uyghurs that are in concentration camps, essentially, in China, as we understand it, because it boxes the Biden administration in with respect to China, considering the Biden family seems to be fairly cozy with the Chinese communists. Now that it's been designated as a state that's committed genocide, and continues to enslave a minority population there, maybe, hopefully, at least some in the press corps would be asking the Biden administration the appropriate questions if they were to soften the U.S.'s stance with respect to China. For more on all of this, including the security preparations for the inauguration today, we're pleased to be joined by Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of PACEM Solutions International and PACEM Defense LLC. Corey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's uh, start with that uh, last topic, the uh, brouhaha over the vetting of National Guardsmen securing the Capitol for Joe Biden's inauguration today. You had uh, Tennessee Congressman Stephen Fingerlichen Cohen say he's worried about uh, the National Guard, worried about a fifth column action against the incoming president because uh, a big percentage of National Guardsmen are white and probably Trump voters. And who knows what a white Trump voting National Guardsman might do. And so there have been 12 of the some 25,000 deployed to the U.S. Capitol that have been sent home for things like social media posts and so forth. It's reported. But what, what is your assessment of just sort of the characterization of National Guardsmen, the, the vetting, the suggestion that um, much like we're hearing about the Capitol Police, that uh, law enforcement and the military really is the, is the problem in some respects here? Well, Dan, again, this is one of those things that's just so absurd to even think about. Being a U.S. military uh, veteran myself, currently a DOD advisor appointee, I can tell you right now that the professionalism that our U.S. military and our armed forces has is paramount to none. It's absurd for me to think that, oh, well, like Cohen said, because they're a white National Guardsman and they're male, that automatically means that they're a Trump supporter and therefore they're a threat. Again, this is Democrats utilizing identity politics. It's all about what you look like and which gender you represent, not about the meritocracy of how you actually fulfill your obligations. The other thing that was very interesting is Major General Walker, who is the D.C. National Guard commander, talked about this vetting process. I'm very familiar with the FBI doing a vetting process for certain special events. When I was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I took part in helping to support different types of diplomatic and CODEL operations. With that, we would take an additional uh, review or vetting of whichever agency we are supporting at the time, and then they would give you a temporary credential that was based on that certain operation or that certain event. So this isn't something that is just unique to this certain situation. So these are things that are very common. I think that even just the hint that this means that they're doing this because you know, National Guard or risk or what Cohen said, which was absolutely disgusting. You know, again, it's just an attack on our military, our law enforcement, defund the police stance. I mean, it just hasn't stopped. And that's just the bottom line. So I just want to understand your position. Are you saying that um, a uh, National Guardsman or a member of the U.S. Army who votes Democrat will also protect Republicans and somebody who votes Republican would also protect Democrats if that's their sworn duty? Is it is that your position? I know how shocking this is. That is wild. Make this a jaw dropper, <laughs> but uh, we have this thing. It's called an oath. We swear to actually protect the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
This is a new revelation for many Democrats who haven't read their constitution. But I served under both a Democratic administration and a Republican administration when I was in the military. If my commander in chief would have designated that I needed to go out and do something on the nation's behalf, guess what? I'm in uniform. I swore an oath. I'm here to serve my nation's purpose. So as surprising as that is, the same types of oath that our law enforcement takes and, you know, carries out their bravery every single day to try and protect our communities, the same as our U.S. military. And the fact is, is that it's only the Democrats who continue to question and who continue to try and attack the people who actually preserve and protect our nation. Yeah, you made an interesting point when you're talking about presidential visit in a, a theater of battle, for example, where troops are deployed. So um, what what is the standard that has been set now with what has transpired in preparation for today's inauguration? So when President Biden goes to visit troops wherever they may be deployed around the country or around the world, I should say, are those troops that will be on site when the president visits, are they going to be allowed to be uh, in the presence of the president of the United States to, based on whether or not they vote for his party, whether or not they have said anything on text messages or in social media that may stand in opposition to the stated policy or behavior of the president of the United States? Is that the standard we're setting? I think that we're setting a lot of very poor precedents. I think that that was starting to be set even back when President Obama was in. You look at his Secret Service detail. I had a friend of mine who was on that detail, and he explained to me that Obama had specified there must be a certain amount of people of color, there must be a certain amount of females, and one of the females that was actually on the details, I was told, didn't even pass the qualification on one of her weapons systems. And they gave her a retry just so they could ensure that they had the right gender color mix. Now, this was already occurring back then. You think about what's happening right now where, you know, you have the radical left who's telling the incoming, you know, to be president that you need more people of color in your cabinet. You need more women of color in your cabinet. It's no longer about meritocracy. And you think that this isn't going to be able to start seeing a spillover? Of course it is. I wanted to get your reaction to uh, an aspect of the conversation with respect to big tech. This is raised by Eric Felton in a very good piece over at RealClearInvestigations.com. He asks, will tech's woke force be with us if we go to war? And he reminds us that uh, Google was uh, partnering with the Pentagon uh, back a couple of years ago in a project called Project Maven to identify drone targets. The software well underway when in 2018 thousands of Google workers protested their company becoming a defense contractor. And so they got out of that business. Google has also stepped back from high-profile military projects, absent from the scramble among firms, including Amazon, Microsoft, and Oracle, to win the contract for the Pentagon's Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, which is a 10-year deal providing cloud computing to the Department of Defense. It's worth billions of dollars. Microsoft is pursuing it over the objections of its workers. And one wonders, I don't want to extrapolate too far from Parler, but if there's enough pressure internally from the woke forces of these big tech companies, whether it is to provide services or it's to continue providing services to assist American government with uh, our national security, that um, they may not be on our side. Is that something that's talked about in, in military circles? Is that a, a concern and thinking about a, a contingency planning uh, for these sorts of needs at, at the federal level? Absolutely. At any point in time, we start to suppress one side of the message. And that right there guarantees that they try and drive an agenda just so the American people would be forced into one frame of thought. And that's that's very dangerous for our country. He is Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran. 
founder and CEO of PaySem Solutions International and PaySem Defense LLC. Corey, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. President Trump's Fair the Well speech yesterday, the video he released, he uh, did have a comment on the violence that took place at the Capitol on January 6th. All Americans were horrified by the assault on our capital. Political violence is an attack on everything we cherish as Americans. It can never be tolerated. Now more than ever, we must unify around our shared values and rise above the partisan rancor and forge our common destiny. Yet as uh, the Senate returned for the purposes of beginning to take up President Biden's cabinet selections, his nominations, It was Mitch McConnell who had uh, this to say about uh, the president and other unnamed parties. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. Well, Inauguration Day is not going to be impeachment 2.0 trial uh, day number one, at least. But where exactly does that stand? Let's start there with our friend Andy Krull, Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be back. So uh, where does that stand, particularly in light of President Trump's uh, parting remarks yesterday and at Andrews Air Force Base today where he was, I think it's fair to say, gracious and uh, you heard him denounce the violence, uh, whatever people want to characterize it. It's a much more conciliatory tone. It's a... Uh, a peaceful transition of power. It's all the things that people were concerned about not manifesting themselves. And so, you know, the energy behind pursuing a conviction in the Senate that requires uh, a third of the Senate caucus, is that still going to be something that both uh, Democrats and Republicans at, at the leadership level want to pursue? Every day that goes by into the Biden and away from the Trump presidency. I think a bit of the momentum behind this second impeachment trial drains out from the effort. I don't know if it's going to be enough draining out to preclude the Senate or convince Chuck Schumer to not go ahead with the trial. But I do think, and from talking to people on Capitol Hill, I, I hear some of this in their comments, that that energy you know, just sort of dissipates yeah. as the Trump presidency starts to recede in the rear view in the Biden administration and really wants to get on with the work of pandemic relief, economic relief, infrastructure plan. We saw West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, the centrist Democrat who will really be a linchpin figure in the new Senate, say, you know, he could support as much as a $4 trillion infrastructure package. And you know that the Biden people are chomping at the bit when they hear something like that. So we're going to see in the next few days where the impeachment trial goes. They could still do a kind of split day calendar in which 
half the day was the legislative priorities, half the day was the impeachment trial, as opposed to doing an entire day of impeachment trial. Yeah, so, so, that would just kind of seem out of step with what the country and what the people want and what they need right now. Right. I mean, and so if, if they did that, that would sort of that, that almost says we're going through the motions here. And I wonder over the weekend you had senators like my home state senator, Dick Durbin, I don't know if it was a tell or if it was a trial balloon, but basically say, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not we're not in the business of whipping the vote with respect to impeachment. You know, senators have to make up their own minds. I mean, I know that's that could be seen as just a a a, a, a sop to senators. We're all independent thinkers and this and that. But really, it was sort of a maybe testing the waters to see what kind of reaction you get in terms of how how fervent the, the Democrat base is to really try to go to the mat on this one. I think it's definitely the case. Dick Durbin is a senior member of the Senate. If he comes forward and says something like that, where they're not going to push members on how to vote like they would on any big piece of legislation, and like they did during the first impeachment trial uh, about a year ago, then you can tell, again, that the energy, that that enthusiasm for an impeachment trial is waning, and that you know there may be a decision by Schumer and Durbin and other senior Democratic leaders to maybe just never go ahead with the trial. Now, they're going to face some pushback from the, the liberal base, both in Senate and in the House as well. The House has already voted to impeach. And they, there are liberal members there who say nothing short of following through with the trial and potentially trying to convict former President Trump from ever holding office again. And there's some you know, constitutional questions about that. It's something worth doing. So it's very much up in the air right now, but I do think we'll get some clarity at least in the next week, maybe even in the next days. Uh, when we come back uh, with uh, Andy Crawl, I want to talk a, a little bit uh, more about uh, what to expect in the next uh, few days from President Biden and his, and his administration. More with Andy Crawl, the Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone magazine, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Andy Crawl, Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine. We're talking about uh, the prospects of the uh, Senate impeachment trial, how um, aggressive Democrats may want to be. We heard some rather aggressive rhetoric from Mitch McConnell. Uh, yesterday on the Senate floor, uh, something else, uh, Andy, in terms of that, that may sort of push this into the rearview mirror, it seems to me. And that's just what President Biden does in his first few days. You know, there's uh, all this reporting on the uh, dozen or so executive orders he's going to issue, uh, unwinding as much of what uh, President Trump did as possible, when it, whether it comes to temporary travel bans, rejoining the Paris, Paris uh, Climate Accord. Uh, opening vaccination centers, uh, mass mandates on federal employees. Uh, it's trying to get uh, his $2 trillion COVID relief package through the Congress. I mean, so as you're trying to do all of these things that draw people's attention and focus people's dialogue, you know, that necessarily precludes focusing people's attention and dialogue elsewhere, like on convicting the past president of the United States. That's right. President Biden has said basically through this entire transition period that his priority and his focus 
is that pandemic relief package, which he has said is nearly $2 trillion, that he has said he wants economic relief, that he wants to put people back to work, and that he does want to start repairing some of the damage done by the previous administration. Only in the last week or so has President Biden, have they given any kind of indication that they understand why some Democrats would want to have an impeachment in the House and then the trial in the Senate, and that it is important as Biden and Harris put it in vague terms, to have accountability for what happened in the run-up to January 6th, January 6th, and afterward. But again, if it's going to come down to the policy priorities of the new administration and hitting the ground running, if this impeachment trial, again, looks like it's going to gum up the works in some way, I don't think you're going to see an enthusiasm or even an appetite for that in the first couple of weeks, first month, first few months. Of this new administration, you know, he, the, the way this has been characterized with respect to Biden is and, and sort of the choice before him in terms of what kind of president does he want to try to be? Is he going to be somebody who is going to try to forge some, to borrow the phrase, common ground between the left and whatever constitutes the more moderate element in the Democrat Party? Or is he going to be sort of captive to uh, one faction or another, depending on the issue? sort of like he's arguably been for 50 years in Washington, where he sort of is a company man who goes wherever the energy in the party is. Uh, is that a fair characterization of the choice, uh, in your estimation, of the choice before Joe Biden? Is that what his fellow Democrats on the Hill believe? I think that's partly what he faces and what his associates in the Democratic Party believe. There is going to be a core of Democrats on the left who are going to be pulling Biden as best they can to the left, to more progressive policies, to more aggressive forms of accountability, including a possible Senate impeachment trial throughout these first four years of the Biden presidency. If there even is a second four years, of course. He's going to have that all the time. Biden himself campaigned on and has now said, and we're probably going to hear in just a few minutes here in his inauguration speech, you know, he's all about unity. He wants to find that common ground, not just with fellow Democrats, but with as many Republicans as he can. And he wants to, as he put it so many times, ad nauseum during the campaign, restore the soul of America. And so he's got this great balancing act to try to do. I think that, and what I've heard, again, talking to people in and around, is that if he can be bold and aggressive with his policies to address the pandemic and economic crisis, that he will win over that left flank of his party, and maybe he won't get as much heat from them as he might have on other issues. And, you know, that's one way to keep his side of the party uh, or, you know, his party, all the different factions together. If that's not the case, and if the AOCs and if the liberal Senate Democrats don't feel like he is being ambitious enough, then you're going to see Joe Biden pulled in a number of different directions and things could get ugly well, pretty quickly. The, the other, we're, we're going to we're going to know pretty soon. Yeah. And the other thing, too, I mean, what you're describing is uh, as I mean, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying you know, that's in a vacuum. That's uh, without considering exogenous events. And he may be precipitating an exogenous event that he won't be able to ignore. I'm speaking of the the migrant caravan making its way to the southern border and the talk from from the Biden administration, from his uh, nominee for Homeland Security, of the path of citizenship for 11 million people in this country illegally over eight years, and then we're not going to have deportations first hundred days. You send those sort of signals, it generates a global response that perhaps 
precipitates the need for action in one direction or the other. And that can derail this uh, this plan you had about I'm going to focus on pandemic relief and then that will give me the capital I need with the left to do X, Y and Z. You know, he he, becomes a little bit more of a multivariate equation than perhaps is being conceived. Of course. I mean, imagine the last year without the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, the ultimate crisis from outside that completely changes history. Joe Biden is going to encounter maybe not a pandemic on that scale, obviously, because he's already in the middle of one, hopefully not a second one at that level. But of course, there will be crises and there will be events coming in from the outside, both potentially of his own making or completely independent of anything he's done. I mean, we haven't talked at all about foreign policy, foreign affairs, which Joe Biden doesn't really have that great of a record on if you look at his early support for the Iraq war and some of his uh, alliances with the more hawkish members of the Democratic Party. So there's a lot that could happen that could derail this administration or at least challenge the administration. You know, I think that that is why there is such an urgency to get as much done as fast as possible, not only to meet the crises we know and we face, the pandemic, economic crash, but also just knowing that things are going to happen that you can't plan for and that will knock you off course. And you got to try to make the most of the time you have and you know what you're dealing with and you have the political capital, you have the goodwill to get it done. And so I think that is why this impeachment trial in the Senate, you know, could lose some support as Biden tries to get things done. It's not going to be the most popular thing, um, but I wouldn't totally rule it out yet. That's not what I hear from the people I talk to in the party. Um, I think it's still on the quote unquote table, but I don't think that it is a priority of a lot of people coming in right now. It'll be interesting because I remember um, many people uh, making the point, myself included, you're not going to turn a 70-year-old man into somebody he's not, uh, talking about Trump when he was inaugurated. And uh, I would say the same thing about the 78-year-old man inaugurated today. It's going to be very difficult to make him something he's not and hasn't been over the last 50 years. So we'll see. Andy Crawl, Washington Bureau Chief, Rolling Stone Magazine. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. I mentioned uh, David Chalane, CNN political director at the top of the hour. I close with the uh, Holman Jenkins, and um, I'll circle back around to the D.C. press corps, as Holman Jenkins does in his piece in The Wall Street Journal, America the Unextreme. When 330 million people must find homes in just two parties, those parties can be many things, Jenkins writes, except a source of coherence, consistency, wisdom, truth, or reason. Okay, I'm with you so far. He, uh, in part, is getting to the point that uh, we don't exactly know. We know directionally where the radical left wants to take the Biden administration, and we know the sort of man that Joe Biden is. Uh, a leaf in the wind. Uh, but you just never know how these things will play out with a two party system. And uh, Jenkins notes, you could not have guessed Jimmy Carter would start the transformation that Ronald Reagan would continue legislative de- legislatively deregulating much of the American transportation and energy sectors. 
introducing a Milton Friedman style regime to the Federal Reserve to save the dollar. Remember, Jimmy Carter started with the airline de- deregulation, as terrible a president he was, policy wise. You could not have guessed George W. Bush's legacy would be two wars, or that after the monumental collapse of his signature health care initiative, Bill Clinton's would be to husband the Carter Reagan capital to preside over another economic boom. So, you know, it's sort of uh, trying to strike a note to hope for the best. Uh, here's um, and, and I mean, and thinking about uh, what the left thought was going to happen with respect to President Trump's finger on the button, uh, you know, this uh, mad king that was going to get us into World War Three. And of course, he's the first president this century who has not do, did not start a war of any kind. Just never know, regardless of your perspective. But one thing that uh, Holman Jenkins does know is that we've got a problem with the press corps in this country. He writes, a New York Times decision to defenestrate an editor because social media didn't like an op-ed now seems pregnant. Remember the Tom Cotton op-ed. Five years ago, it wouldn't have happened. Every editor and newspaper owner would have known that to surrender to the mob was death to our business. But the episode is dispositive. Cowardice is in charge of many newsrooms. Fear instead of reason. Fear of losing a job in the next Twitter eruption. Fear of being knifed by an ideologi- by ideologically obsessed colleagues determines what you can see, hear, or be taught in certain of our institutions. Jefferson said a free press is democracy's indispensable bulwark. If so, returning courage to our newsrooms may be more important to bringing America back and restoring a semblance of consensus than any job, Mr. Biden formally accepted on Wednesday. Yeah. And please see David Shalane from my comments earlier in the hour. But uh, thinking about where the state of the fourth estate as the linchpin of where this country goes in the next four years and beyond. Wise words from Holman Jenkins over at the Journal, as per usual. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. I thought uh, perhaps President Trump's most trenchant remark yesterday in his Fare Thee Well speech was his riff on free thought and free speech in a free society. Only if we forget who we are and how we got here could we ever allow political censorship and blacklisting to take place in America. It's not even thinkable. Shutting down free and open debate violates our core values and most enduring traditions. In America, we don't insist on absolute conformity or enforce rigid orthodoxies and punitive speech codes. We just don't do that. America is not a timid nation of tame souls who need to be sheltered and protected from those with whom we disagree. That's not who we are. It will never be who we are. We don't need to be protected from disagreement by the government or by big tech corporations or anybody else. That's the defiance. That's the taking up the fight aspect of Trump that I'm going to miss. And I think 
We'll see what happens over the next uh, four years, heck, over the next couple of months. But I think a lot of people are going to come to miss that, too. For more on that topic specifically, please to be joined again by Shmuel Klatskin. He's the associate rabbi of the Chabad of Greater Dayton, Ohio, an adjunct professor at Antioch University and senior editor of curriculum at JLI. Rabbi Klatskin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you again. What about uh, what President Trump had to say about uh, enforced orthodoxy of opinion and blacklisting that's going on? I agree with him 100%. It's completely anti-American and anti-freedom. This is the most foundational idea that came as we emerged from the Middle Ages, that we needed to be able to speak about the great issues uh, that run people's lives, that people dedicate their lives to, about religion and politics. And we, with great pain, we established freedom of religion and we established freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But just as consistent as that in our history have been attempts to just forget about that. And America has, we, we've, we've had that in our history. One of the words that's come to the fore in these uh, past uh, few weeks since the, uh, as uh, one writer put it, the unquiet riot at the Capitol was the word sedition. It's well chosen. Uh, we had in our second president's uh, term of office, and I, I'm a great admirer of John Adams. I, I, I find him an uh, incredibly admirable person and thinker. But nonetheless, his administration passed an act called the Sedition Act, by which they criminalized what was basically just strongly expressed dissent through representatives, elected representatives into jail, and uh, was rightly decried by Jefferson and his party as as really going back on what the Bill of Rights was all about. This is why Reagan famously observed that uh, freedom is always just a generation away from extinction. It has to be fought for and won generation after generation after generation. And people don't know the history. They don't understand that our constitutional rights have been under threat before and they will be again. And the response to those threats is what uh, tells the story. We've been given so much. I know growing up, I mean, the amount of things I took for granted, our adulthood, I think, really comes when we see just how fragile these things are and how we have to stand for them uh, in whatever way that's peaceful and courageous to, uh, to retain them. It's something that's very deep in, in the tradition. In the Jewish tradition, there's a, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, story told of one of the greatest of rabbis who was named uh, Rabbi Yochanan, who had a star student, and his greatness was that he contradicted him at every turn hmm. uh, when, and, and it sharpened his mind. When, when, when the student passed away early, a lot of other students vied for that position. But every time the, 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 the head rabbi would say something, they'd all say, oh, yes, it's based here, and here's a text which supports you. The head rabbi said to them, if I hadn't known those texts, I wouldn't have said what I did. But the man who died, he would challenge me, and we'd both get smarter and better and deeper for it. And uh, we've lost that sense of robust debate. It's, it's been taken as being somehow uh, offensive, uh, and uh, it's, it's a mark of weakness in those who are currently holding on to reins of power if they, ever, if they move in that direction. It shows how unsure they really are of the truth of what they're standing for. Again, I just have to go back to sort of the the quality of K through 12 instruction in this country. Um, You uh, cite in a piece that you wrote on the topic at Spectator, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, one of my favorite observations, perhaps uh, the favorite observation for me, is the majority opinion in the 1943 case of West Virginia 
State of Edu- State Board of Education v. Barnett, in which Justice Robert Jackson said, enforced orthodoxy of opinion achieved only the unanimity of the graveyard. And that was a case that in which forcing students to recite the Pledge of Allegiance was the issue. And Jackson said, no, uh, the First Amendment protects students from being forced to salute the flag or say the Pledge of Allegiance in public school. And it's interesting because we were having this conversation about saluting the flag and saying the pledge, but particularly saluting the flag because of the public displays of kneeling before the flag and in sports, but not limited to sports over the last several years. And we would have this conversation about, I find that objectionable, but I also recognize it's Colin Kaepernick's right, for example, to kneel or it's other NFL players' right to kneel before the flag. This is not a, this does not run afoul of free expression. This is not something you can force them to do is stand and salute the flag. And so here we are today, here we are today, sort of in the opposite (laughs) position. And maybe if the left, those on the left had a little bit better understanding of just how freedom works, or in the words of Kamala Harris, freedom, uh, how that works, uh, (laughs) maybe, maybe we could advance the flag, as it were, for the things that we understood once upon a time, whether in the 40s or uh, a couple of generations earlier with Oliver Wendell Holmes. I had a wonderful uh, early education uh, in public school, and I remember the fellow in our class, the family on religious reasons, did not. They told him he should not be present for the pledge, and he was never ostracized. He was never uh, the teacher uh, saw to it that the students respected him. Uh, we all did the pledge, and we all believed in it. But we also believed that what made that pledge valuable is a freedom like this that it stood for. And we had an object lesson every day. Uh, and, and that was, that was great. I'm very blessed to have had such, uh, such a, such great uh, teaching. Also as someone who is a very, I might say orthodox religiously, I realized that you can't just force people into it and have a, a religious commitment that comes from being uh, forced. Uh, there's an old proverb in, in, in uh, Hebrew that words that are spoken from the heart enter the heart. And that's, I've learned in a free country that that makes me better at my commitments by being forced to really touch someone's heart rather than just bash them over the head or force them in some external way. And I think our politics has to be informed from our religion. I think that's a lot of uh, the, the, what America has seen and why we value freedom of religion. We put it beyond the pale, not that it should be entirely separate from our politics, but we come, as Adam says, you know, the only way you can have this constitution as a, as a moral and religious people it won't work otherwise. We come with the deepest sort of commitments which inform us how we should go about uh, the work together with others. You, you uh, in your piece, uh, you make a, a salient point that I want you to develop for our listeners only free thought can produce unity. Without free thought, all you can do is impose a false unity. Explain. Yeah, there's the unity where every, every difference is crushed and removed. You wind up with husks of human beings then. It's not really a unity. It's a uniformity at best. It has no tensile strength. In the end, it will break, even if, for whatever reason, that darkness of such a situation lasts for a long time. The, the ability of a free society uh, to bring together its strength uh, is, you know, it's deceptive. The, the dictators in the 30s, you know, were contemptuous of free societies and thought they were weak, and they were almost right. But the power that the democracies brought to bear was, in the end, it was triumphant, because we have the full power of, our, of the commitment that we found the way to. 
and it's a unity which I think expresses best, to, to put it in theological terms, our, our belief in a one core reality from which the wondrous variety of this incredible universe has sprung. And we have to apply that insight into our, into our politics, which we've done to develop free societies. That's the way it's meant. That is the nature of things. Jefferson talked about nature and nature's God. That's the reality. He, he wasn't talking about simply this is the way we'd like it to be and it's a program. But he was speaking to an established fact that if we don't recognize, we're all the weaker for it. And when we do, we have an incredible strength, the strength that, that the universe is built on. That's like a friendly addition to uh, Newspeak in 1984. Ignorance is strength, freedom is slavery, <laughs> unity is uniformity, or uniformity is unity. Yeah. Either way, I mean, that's, that's, that's where we're at. That's a, I like it. I like it. Shmuel Klatskin, he is the Associate Rabbi of the Chabad of Greater Dayton, Ohio, adjunct professor at Antioch University, and senior editor of Curriculum at JLI. Rabbi Klatskin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. A great pleasure, Olin. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show the only thing more over the top than david shalane talking about lanterns is uh, princeton university economics professor alan blinder talking about uh, Biden's COVID relief. He calls it a stimulus. It's not stimulative. Therefore, it's not a stimulus. He writes, I now have an inkling of how the French must have felt when Allied troops liberated Paris in 19, August of 1944. Things were terrible. There was wreckage all around. And yet a sense of opti- optimism must have been pervasive. Right. The inauguration of Joe Biden today is akin to the Allied troops liberating Paris in August of 1944. Boy, how the Ivy League has fallen. Uh, He um, goes on to say on the matters which he supposedly is an expert, economics, go big. Mr. Biden's American rescue plan is more than twice as large as the $900 billion plus package Congress finally cobbled together in December. The president-elect called the measure a down payment, and we now see that he meant what he said. Biden's proposal to increase from 300 a week to 400 a week, the unemployment benefits through September and... um, then phase out as the labor market improves are wise. Team Biden got all the big things right, writes Professor Blinder. And he also suggests that uh, the uh, aid to state and local governments is sorely needed, quote unquote. More than a million people have been laid off from government, according to him. And Mr. Biden must win this fight to get all of those government employees back on the job in government. For more on this, because I I read a piece from our next guest on Fox News, he begs to differ with Professor Blinder. Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's so funny you should read that quote from Blinder because, you know, obviously I'm a Trump guy, but to me it feels more like an occupation rather than a liberation. Uh, This is going to be, um, well, let me put it like this. Anybody who thought that voting for um, Joe Biden, including, you know, I have relatives and friends who are kind of moderates who thought, oh, it'll be just fine. He's going to be lunch bucket Joe. He'll be that moderate centrist. Democrat. Uh, folks, this is not going to be a moderate centrist administration. We've already seen, you know, one uh, dingbat policy after another. And by the way, the one point nine trillion dollar 
uh, stimulus bill that you're talking about. It comes on the heels of $900 billion, as, as you were just mentioning, that Trump signed. I was not, the record will show that I was not in favor of the $900 billion, and I'm certainly not in favor of $1.9 trillion. There is a superstition, a kind of mysticism in economics that all we have to do is just keep spending and borrowing money and everything's going to be all right. So, you know, $3 trillion, that should do it, Dan. I mean, we should be out of this crisis with $3 trillion. Uh, I, I just want to get your your take on, I know uh, modern monetary theory tells us that uh, the Fed is omnipotent and omniscient, and uh, Jay Powell said uh, there's nothing that could blow up this expansion. Zero rates will be the in place for a long time. You don't have any concern that we may be heading over a cliff the way we did in, in advance of uh, 2008. Um, the difference is we just don't know when quite yet. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you asked that question because I want to be crystal clear about what I meant to say. What, what I meant to say is if we just stop spending money and get the government out of the way, then I think the economy is really teed up. You know, people will start traveling again. They'll go to hotels again. They'll go. By the way, I was in Florida this past weekend, guys. I, I know you're going to be jealous, but everything was open. Yes. I mean, you can't. Not only, not only are the restaurants open, you can't even get a reservation for a restaurant. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of states that are open. But what I'm saying is if Biden were just to do nothing and let the virus uh, be conquered by the vaccine and just let don't spend one point nine trillion. By the way, Casey Mulligan, I, you know, he's at the University of Chicago. He and I have a study out uh, suggesting that if the Biden plan passes, uh, sorry, uh, Blinder. But we believe that bill will cost the economy five million jobs because it actually gives money for free to people for not working. It also extends unemployment benefits and gives them four hundred dollars an extra payment per week. Sixty four percent of workers who are now unemployed are getting more money now under the Biden plan for not working than returning to work. Do you think people are going to return to work? Well, not only that, it also extends uh, the forbearance on evictions and foreclosures to September. Yep. By the way, that means, of course, I have good, some friends who own apartment buildings. As soon as they announce things, guess what people stop doing? Paying rent. Paying rent. <laughs> people are stupid. So, you know, my, my two friends who own apartment buildings, you know, they're doing pretty well, but they're not rich. But guess what? If the, people stop paying the rent, then they don't have the payment to pay the mortgage. So the bank doesn't have the money. And, and you know, politicians, do they really think Americans are that stupid? Well, I mean, economics is all about incentives. If you pay people not to pay the rent, they're not going to pay the rent. If you pay people not to work, they're not going to work. It's like if there's a collective amnesia uh, among economists uh, that, that that somehow all you have to do is pay people money and give them free money. And, and, and the idea in Washington, by the way, these days is the only shortage we have to worry about right now is running out of paper and ink to print all the bills we're going right. to print. Well, so he, here's the thing, though. So um, let's talk about what is likely to happen based on what is likely to happen rather than what we could have if the Biden administration did something it's not going to do. So we're talking about uh, his $2 trillion relief plan and those component parts. We're talking about a return to the Paris climate deal. We're talking about stopping the Keystone XL pipeline. We're talking about uh, the right to housing. We're talking about uh, student debt loan forgiveness. So if those things come to pass, now, what are we looking at in 2021 and beyond? It's a good question. I mean, I do think that even if, if Biden screws everything up, I think we're still going to have a pretty decent 2021 because I just think the economy is primed up. I mean, the vaccine is the stimulus. And so it's a question of whether we're going to get, you know, three or four percent growth or, you know, we could get eight to 10 percent growth in 2021. We had uh, almost 10 percent growth in the fourth quarter of 2020, even before the vaccine hit. So 
we have an incredibly resilient economy, and you can't discount the resiliency of our small businessmen and women who've kept their head above water, even though the government keeps trying to plunge it below water. So I do think 2021 is looking pretty good. I would not be buying stocks right now. I think stock prices are ridiculously high. I don't get it. And I agree with Steve Forbes. Uh, this has to do with your point about inflation. I, I just think 22 and 20, you know, the, the more medium term looks bad as these policies start to take place. You know, look, there's an old saying in economics, you know, debts have to be repaid. And this idea we can just borrow our way to nirvana. I mean, is there anybody who really believes that? Joe Biden, who famously said <laughs> during the Obama administration, famously said we have to keep spending to prevent from going bankrupt. That's who believes it. Uh, <laughs> Steve Moore, <laughs> economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Tumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Okay, guys. 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. Nobody except biologist and evolutionary theorist Brett Weinstein, who appeared in the film No Safe Spaces to issue this warning, about political correctness running amok. If this is allowed to continue, it is going to work its way into the entire apparatus of government, journalism, maybe most seriously into the tech sector, which has become the governance apparatus for the new public square. YouTube and Google, Facebook and Twitter dictate whose voices can be heard. And if those entities start trying to engineer the conversation to adhere to the rules laid out with these phony Trojan horse terms, disaster will be the result. You need to see the full movie No Safe Spaces today for a preview of the politically correct dangers facing America as the Biden-Harris era begins this week. Just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do. And you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show with so much talk of violence on American soil after the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. It was interesting to note that in part of President Trump's fare thee well yesterday, he talked about uh, the peace through strength that punctuated his administration. All Americans were horrified by the assault on our Capitol. Political violence is an attack on everything we cherish as Americans. It can never be tolerated. Now more than ever, we must unify around our shared values and rise above the partisan rancor and forge our common destiny. We restored American strength at home and American leadership abroad. The world respects us again. Please don't lose that respect. I am especially proud to be the first president in decades who has started no new wars. For more on those comments, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Purple. He is senior editor at The American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, pleasure to be back. Thank you. So uh, with respect to uh, President Trump on um, two points, uh, 
his perspective that uh, America's respect within the world has been restored as compared to what he inherited and where America was in 2016, 2017. That may be a, a point of contention. The second part of what he said really isn't. He is the first president of the United States in decades to not start a war. Yeah, he gets away with murder a bit on that one, I think, because he did expand the war on terror uh, into northern Africa. It was there already, but he kind of continued that process. He did tighten the war against Yemen, which has been horrifying, you know, sucking up to the Saudi monarchy in that case that I really don't think needed to happen. He assassinated Soleimani in Iraq, a very contentious, very provocative move that uh, is viewed very controversially there. A lot of people don't like it. On the other hand, he has withdrawn some troops from Syria. He has moved some troops out of Germany, albeit and a lot of them have gone uh, into Eastern Europe. He has uh, at least rhetorically expressed a desire to end these wars. So uh, as are many things with Trump, it's complicated. It doesn't neatly fit into one description, one camp or the other. Well, on Soleimani, and I'll throw in al-Baghdadi as well, I mean, the sort of targeted takeouts of those terrorist leaders, I don't know if I would call that uh, escalatory in nature. Uh, in addition, uh, one of the things you left out, uh, the Abraham Accords, which his administration deserves sure. at least some of the credit for. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I, we may not consider it to be a provocation that Soleimani was assassinated here, but it is considered a provocation by many, many Shiite Iraqis and also within Iran itself. You know, they recently voted to you know, basically throw Trump out of Iraq, or they, they ordered the arrest of Donald Trump in Iraq. Uh, after the assassination happened, they also uh, ordered our troops out. The Iraqi parliament voted our troops out. They kind of drew that back a little bit, but still it, it shows what a provocative mood it was. Um, and also Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, too. We, we can say that. So it depends on how realist you're willing to go on foreign policy, right? It depends on how far uh, you go on this stuff. But again, I, I tend to think that Trump's legacy is mixed. Uh, I have two other uh, actors I want to include in this conversation, enemies of America, Russia and China. Uh, even uh, Fareed Zakaria, when it was safe to, uh, recently said that the dirty little secret of the Trump administration is he was pretty tough on China, on, on uh, Russia, that is. In a piece in a New York Review of Books, Perry Link, who uh, is a champion of China's, uh, many of China's most uh, notable dissidents, applauded Trump's for, quote, a demotion of U.S. policy elite that had resisted the truth about the Chinese communists. And then, of course, you have out the door Pompeo and the administration characterizing the Chinese communist treatment of Uyghurs as genocide. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. I, I would summarize it this way. I think that Trump has been much tougher on Russia than he gets credit for. And I think that he's been more reasonable on China than he gets credit for. You know, with China, it took him until now to classify the genocide against the Uyghurs as a genocide. You know, we've known this for a very long time. Uh, he also has, uh, you know, he's imposed tariffs and he's talked tough, but he's also shown a willingness to talk to Xi and to try to improve relations. You know, his, his position has always been, we want to make sure that China is playing and trading on a level playing field rather than trying to, you know, cheat the international trade system and so on. So I, I think that that's how I would characterize his approach to China. On Russia, look, I mean, he withdrew, it was the biggest withdrawal of ambassadors uh, from Russia since the Cold War, of American staff, uh, embassy staff since the Cold War. He did that early in his term. Uh, he's imposed a lot of sanctions. Uh, he just signed a defense bill that's going to further sanction 
the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which Germany was hoping to build with Russia, connecting the, the kind of west to the east in that way. So, yeah, he's definitely slammed down a lot harder. And the idea that somehow he's a Russian plant or a Manchurian candidate, you know, that was so common during the impeachment trial and the Robert Mueller investigation, this notion that somehow he's doing the behest of the Russians. Uh, it's one of the greatest lies of the past four years. Well, and it, and it persists uh, right up until to Hillary's podcast with Nancy Pelosi this week. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, when we come back uh, with uh, Matt Purple, I want to switch gears and talk about a piece he recently penned about politics becoming substance abuse, mainly because he has a reference to C.S. Lewis's hideous strength. And I will talk about anything that references hideous strength. Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative. More right up to you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com. Before the break, talking about the uh, Trump administration a legacy and record on matters of war and peace in the international arena. I want to switch gears and talk uh, about sort of domestic political culture per this piece that you wrote, Matt, when politics becomes substance abuse and, and sort of politics yeah. as um, a stimulant that people need to uh, derive meaning in their life. There, there's there been a lot of pieces, and we're going to talk later in the show to Will Riley, who penned one, about politics as religion, a substitute for religion. Um Less so about the addictive nature of politics. So uh, address the the analogy you were making. No, yeah. Look, I don't think that politics really became a form of substance abuse until Twitter and Facebook came along. And you had this just constant, never-ending grind, you know, that this constant need for content, you get constant updates on developments going on, and people became outraged by it. I mean, that, that's what really pushes but- people's buttons on the internet is outrageous reports, you know, things that really tick them off. And that's how a lot of news sites make their money these days. I'm a firm believer that politics cannot consume your life. You have to have a life that exists and is lived outside of the political. And one of the great things about the American experiment is that the founders tried to guarantee that that was the case, that government didn't just come in, usurp all your rights, inflict itself on you. I think that we need to get back to that understanding. Well, the pro- I mean, I agree with all that, that the problem becomes uh, when those with a preponderance of the cultural power force politics into everything. So, you know, there's no law requiring the NFL or the arts or corporate America to take the political tax that they've taken. They're doing it anyway. And so then it, it sort of, you know, compels people to participate or be marginalized. Yeah, and it's, we should be clear, the left fired first here. You know, the left came up with the saying that the political is personal back in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, the woke, woke culture perpetuated the idea that if you have any cultural influence, you have to use it to fight for a political cause. You know, you have to use it as it's kind of part of that, the woke hive mind, so to speak. And a lot of, uh, to the extent the right has become like this, a lot of it is reactive and defensive. They're, they're saying, wait, no, leave us alone. We don't want the left constantly intruding in our lives. We want to be, you know, left to our own devices. And I think it's been bad for both sides ultimately, but, but you're right that the left really uh, was the, the first uh, offender here. Well, so in, in, in the other problem, and again, just going back to hideous strength, which basically tells or has the same takeaway as the abolition of man, 
which is that there are natural laws and objective values and they need to be taught. Mm -hmm. Um, That is completely out of favor. And so then it becomes a complete free for all with nobody started with with very few people starting from the same foundation. And and, and those people who are at least the the C.S. Lewis formulation are under assault from uh, all directions. And then, as you say, that gets amplified and repeated and the, the social media channels you know, are by their very nature, if you've watched this at all or you've seen the um, social uh, dilemma documentary and so forth, I mean, they're, they're wired to be addictive. And so now you have people sort of in a constant uh, uh, out, outrage attack uh, s- cycle uh, that, um, that, that that just is, is heat generating, no light generating. And so for all the politicians' references to unity and healing – you just have an environment where that is virtually impossible. Yeah, I think you trace that lineage very well. And I'm reminded of the abolition of man. He talks about C.S. Lewis talks about the Green Book, which is a synonymous textbook, uh, educational textbook that says the purpose of education is not moral instruction. And the purpose of the abolition of man is to respond to this idea that we aren't going to have moral education anymore, that that really doesn't matter. And I think if you don't have any kind of moral education, if you if you disregard that, then you don't teach people how to be restrained and how to exercise prudence and how to, you know, if they see a problem or they see somebody they don't like, they understand that they can just leave them alone. They don't have to make it their own problem, their own cause. You know, we've become such a bunch of busybodies and, and politics has just intruded everywhere. And I think it's, it's like you say, you know, we, we've got to remember how to mind our own business. We've got to remember how to tend to our own affairs to get our own house in order before we go, you know, screaming at everybody else, telling them what to do and bossing them around. And, and we've got to learn to detach from this outrage cycle. We've got to understand that one of the best things we can do for ourselves is to think clearly. And clear thought requires not being constantly outraged at everybody on Twitter or at some little perceived slight that you might have. So it's, it's a lot of work. And I think if you read Lewis, as you clearly have, you, you realize just how deeply rooted the problem is and how systemic it is. Well, what's your reaction to those conservatives uh, who say essentially – we need to, to and, and I agree with this first part, but not, I think, where some want to take it. We need to build our own castles. We need to have our own platforms. We need to have our own web service providers. We need to have our own screenplays and so on and so forth. Plays. Sure. Great. But they wanted, they're, they're talking about it so that we can be away from those forces of the left. We sort of be siloed. To me, that's that atomization is facilitating exactly what the left otherwise wants. That there has to be places of engagement and clear thinking and even clear thinking in the face of less than clear thinking. So, so, so in other words, I'm not going to shut down my Twitter account because Trump was banned on Twitter. Uh, that's one expression of it. Not everybody has to do that if they feel like I just want to disengage from social media altogether. OK, fine. But the, but the rationale behind some of the, the conservatives that are seeking safe spaces, to borrow a phrase, that's a little troubling to mm-hmm. me. It is for me, too, and I think it does a number of of deleterious things. First of all, if we silo ourselves, it just makes it easier for the left to target us. You know, we're all on parlor. They shut parlor down. That's all they have to do. Second of all, I think it's going to cause us to stagnate. You know, we're not going to be sharpening our wits against left-wing arguments because we're not going to be seeing left-wing arguments. We're just going to be talking with our own kind, and I, I think that's going to do us a disservice, too. And third of all, look. Any republic, any country is always going to have liberals and conservatives. 
you know, it's always going to have more urban types. It's always going to have more rural types. It's always going to have, you know, those who believe in less government, those who believe in more government. Uh, we have to come, we have to find a way to accommodate both of those impulses, both of those sides. Well, at the same time, as conservatives, making sure that the right ones prevail, right? Making sure that we're able to out-argue the other side and making sure that we're able to win. Uh, but we're always going to have a left. We're always going to have a liberalism. And I think to just run away from it, you know, and perhaps even to pretend that it doesn't exist, that doesn't align with reality. And um, I mean, if you take that, that far enough, if you follow that impulse far enough, you could end up at secession, which I think is not where we want to go. He is Matt Purple, senior editor of the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Show.com. Welcome back to the show, and I just wanted to end this hour with a, a comment on pardons uh, after Trump uh, pardoned uh, and commuted the sentences of about 140 individuals yesterday, including his former advisor, Steve Bannon, including some rap stars. Not including himself or his family or Rudy Giuliani, despite uh, all of the press frenzy about the prospect of those things occurring. Uh, also, Casey Erlacher, the brother of former Bears linebacker Brian Erlacher, who had been indicted in some gambling related charges. So th- this is not particular to Trump, but just the timing of it. You know, if you were bothered, as I was, by the pardon of Mark Rich by Bill Clinton on his way out the door, I just think. While I understand the pardon is constitutionally provided presidential power, Article 2, Section 2, for those of you scoring at home, don't you find it smacks of ruling class privilege, particularly when done on the way out the door, out the door so there's no political consequences that the president can suffer? I just think it's another example of a different system of justice for the politically connected. I don't like it. So it's just a, a comment in principle. It's not really, you know, to measure The pardons that were issued or commutations issued by Trump versus Clinton versus Obama versus George W. Bush. I'm not getting into them, just making a general statement. And I'm not saying it's an easy question because, for example, his earlier pardon of George Papadopoulos, who was virtually entrapped by the FBI process crime for that, that had no relation to any underlying criminal activity, but provided the opportunity for the FBI to continue with their Russian collusion fishing expedition. You know, there's a strong argument to be made there that that was justice, uh, Trump parting Papadopoulos. But I think just on balance, you know, what you see is a lineup of people with political connections. And that's who gets preferential treatment, generally speaking, when it comes to presidential pardons or commutations. And it just rubs me the wrong way. Something that uh, Trump did on the way out the door, though, too, that probably won't come to fruition, given the uh, Biden administration. But um, the uh, and it probably won't get much attention. Wish it would have. The Garden of American Heroes. Two hundred and forty four people. Trump wants to be honored in the Garden of American Heroes. An executive order he issued on Monday. It would be a statuary park. And um, there's a task force, interagency task force for building and rebuilding monuments to American heroes in charge of planning the National Garden for American heroes. For embodying the American spirit of daring and defiance, excellence and adventure, courage and confidence, loyalty and love. Sort of like a a statuary park for those who received the um, Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, But unfortunately, when you have an administration that is 
beholden to the 1619 project types, it's unlikely that this will ever materialize. But I certainly appreciate the idea that after years of trying to, and, and frankly, this is all current in this administration, the Biden administration, trying to rewrite American history into something it never was and, and trying to whitewash and start a new American history on January 20th of 2021, tearing down the monuments, including with the assistance of politicians around the country, uh, of America's founders and others who contribute mightily to this representative republic, to do something to uh, memorialize uh, those who have contributed so much to America and to Western civilization, I thought was a great idea. Perhaps it should, should have been done just a little bit earlier. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. A working paper posted over at the National Bureau of Economic Research from academics at Harvard, Duke, and Johns Hopkins concluded there could be around a million excess deaths over the next two decades as a result of the lockdowns. For the overall population, the increase in the death rate following COVID-19 pandemic implies a staggering 890,000 to 1.37 million excess deaths over the next 15 and 20 years, respectively. The paper suggests that the deaths caused by the economic and societal decline as a result of lockdowns may, quote, far exceed those immediately related to the acute COVID-19 critical illness, which, as we know, according to the government stats, is at 400,000 plus now. The recession caused by the pandemic can jeopardize population health for the next two decades. We tried to talk about this. I mean, we didn't try. We did talk about it. Not a lot of people are paying attention. Certainly those decision makers and particularly those uh, who live in the fantasy land of a world without trade-offs talked about the research we know in terms of the public health effects from recessions, not even necessarily pandemic related, just recessions in generally. So when you induce a deep one, expect the same public health consequences. And this one, obviously, much more profound because the lockdowns obviously impacted people not in the workforce like kids. The authors also note, quote, based on emerging data, it is likely that the limited access to health care during the lockdown. Temporary discontinuation of preventative care interventions, massive loss of employer provided health insurance coverage and the lingering concern of the population about seeking medical care out of a fear of contracting COVID will impact mortality rate and life expectancy even more severely. There was a study out last week revising down the expected life expectancy in America by a year for white people by north of two years for blacks and Latinos. How about that for trade offs? Nobody was listening and forget, uh, you know, conservative like me, like this show. Of course, you don't listen to that. We don't know anything. But nobody listened in October when the World Health Organization's regional director for Europe, Hans Klug, said government should stop enforcing lockdowns unless as a last resort because the impact on other areas of health and mental well-being more damaging. In October, David Nabarro, the WHO special envoy, we talked about him, presented what he had to say. We do appeal to world leaders, stop using lockdown as your primary control method. Well, I guess Lori Lightfoot and J.B. Pritzker and St. Andrew of COVID-19 and Gavin Newsom and 
the Ava Perone of East Lansing and Phil Murphy in New Jersey. I, I guess they just don't constitute world leaders, so they're exempt. Maybe, maybe that's how they explain it. In San Francisco, three times as many people have died of opioid overdoses as have died from COVID-19, a city that is locked down in a state that is locked down. Three times as many have died from overdoses as from COVID-19. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Kevin Pham. He is a medical doctor, which is why I call him doctor. Uh, contributor to the Daily Signal, a former graduate fellow in health policy at the, health, at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, what about that, uh, the continuing number crunching and the continued modeling and the continued scientific research? Oh, the science isn't settled in, in terms of understanding the impacts of the policy choices that have been made, uh, particularly uh, the impacts of uh, the lockdown and the lockdowners that isn't talked about. And this against the backdrop, not just of a persistence in this country, but in the West generally, including with some British officials talking about uh, the lockdown they're under now, you know, get used to this uh, well into 2022. Yeah, all of, <clears throat> all of the evidence that, we're, that we've been looking at shows that, you know, lockdowns don't really do anything. When we're looking at, when we're comparing, <laughs> well, they don't do anything for what we intend them to do, uh, which is to prevent the, the, the further transmission of COVID-19. It ha- these lockdowns have been completely ineffective as a solution to, to preventing COVID-19. Now, if you look at the cases back in, uh, back in March and April, when we first instituted the 15 days and then followed that with the 30 days, so 45 days total, uh, there was a, there was, we did hit a peak and then a sustained decline in cases. And so I think for that short period, we were able to rally uh, and, then, and then really, and really hunker down. And then I think that actually, <clears throat> that actually helped. But the problem is that that was always a tactic, never a strategy. And we're seeing governors and um, world leaders decide to use lockdowns as the overall strategy. And it's, it's, we're just not designed to do that. I, you know, I went home for the holidays and I saw personally that even in my own life, even people who are pretty normally pretty well adjusted, they're starting to, they're starting to have major effects to their mental health. And it's, it's pretty bad. The uh, incoming CDC director saying over the weekend that, uh, Things are going to get worse over the next several weeks. We have some dark weeks ahead, is what she said. So, how should people how should people take that uh, statement? How should they understand it, and and what should they do in response to that statement? Is there anything they can do other than queue up for vaccine distribution by however it's being distributed where they live? I mean, frankly, I don't even know what what to take of that situation or that statement. <clears throat> because I'm looking, I'm looking at the the COVID numbers over the the past several weeks, and they were they were getting worse over the over the early winter. But we seem to have hit a a peak in the number of hospitalizations, which right now is probably the most um, reliable figure that you can use because there's decreased testing over the the holidays. But there's been a a week and a half um, sustained decline in the number of hospitalizations, so it seems like things are actually getting better. <clears throat> For for what people can do, I think is just try to get those vaccines. <clears throat> I'm, I'm finding out that a lot of clinics are allowing for vaccinations for people who don't who were originally scheduled to get vaccinated, but they missed it. And they have um, some some clinics have a will call. Places like Walgreens and CVS may have a will call or a standby list for vaccinations. And I would get one. Um, I signed up where wherever I could, but I would get one if you can. I think that's that's. Uh, <clears throat> 
that the time frame of when these vaccines were authorized is showing the impact right now with, with the sustained decline in at least hospitalization. Can I read you some uh, mitigation strictures from Chicago and uh, get you to comment on the science behind them, if there is any such science? Restaurant and bar. I'll give you a couple examples. Restaurant and bars. Outdoor services allowed, including tables within eight feet of walls that are at least 50 percent open. I'll let you you work that in your head. Just visualize that. Uh, Outdoor service. Tables within eight feet of walls that are at least 50 percent open. Indoor events of 10 or fewer can resume if food is served and only in locations that are designated and typically used for private events only. Face coverings at all times and so forth. Um, and they must close at 11 p.m., may reopen no earlier than 6 a.m. I guess um, COVID uh, sleeps between midnight and 6 and six a.m., or 11 p.m. and 6 p.m. Uh, health, fitness, uh, health and fitness centers, 25% capacity indoors. Group classes of 10 or fewer can resume under the 25% capacity. Reservations no longer required. Locker rooms can reopen under capacity restrictions. Face coverings. Uh, movie theaters, indoor 40% with no more than 50 people in any one state. Retail stores, grocery stores and pharmacies can operate at 50%, all other stores at 40%. Museums can reopen at 25% capacity. Guided tours are limited to 50. Groups are limited to 10. Guided tours different than groups. Okay. Personal services, 40% capacity, no more than 50 people. Indoor recreation, 25% capacity with no more than 25 people. Um, all that stuff, uh, check with the, uh, the, 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 the science and the data that we have called together over the last year about this? Um, you know, that, that 10% between 40% and 50% between um, whatever the business, that 10% is very essential. In, in very, no, no but none, none, of this, none of this really makes a lot of sense. Right. <clears throat> you know? Like, there, there is a general principle in that if you try to avoid crowded areas uh, full of strangers, then you're probably doing, doing fairly well. And beyond that, these, these numbers that they're, they're coming up with, they're, complete, they're completely arbitrary. You know? Why within eight feet of a wall? Like what, why exactly is that? Why not six feet of the wall? Like it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. And the problem is that these government bureaucrats are the ones coming up with these completely arbitrary numbers. They should really let the establishments uh, dictate or at least um, try to determine for themselves what is what is safe with some principles that come from public health. But at this point, public health officials have completely shot their credibility, so that's going to be difficult too. Uh, but we, we all know how a respiratory virus is transmitted. We should trust people to, to take care of their customers, take care of their uh, visitors uh, on their own because at this point, the the rules are mind-boggling. The time limits are completely nonsensical, and yeah, at this point, it's all theater. It's just it's pandemic theater now. Thank you, Dr. Kevin Pham, medical doctor, contributor to the Daily Signal, former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Kevin Pham, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Well, 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You want to have Donald J. Trump to kick around anymore, but um, I don't think that's where our focus should be. Our focus needs to be on those lanterns adorning the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial. David Shalane, political director of CNN, one of the most important men in America. The contrast on display tonight was so stark. I mean, those lights that are that are just shooting out from the Lincoln oh, Memorial uh, along the reflecting pool. It, I look, it's like almost extensions of Joe Biden's arms embracing America. It was a- I, I want to nestle into his bosom. Oh, that, that's like they're reaching out, the, the soaring rhetoric. Let the healing begin. This is farcical on a Shakespearean level so far. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, a ride through America's enduring history with the gun from the revolution to today. I don't know if it's going to be to today anymore. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. How about those lanterns? This reminds me of uh, Obama's inauguration and that whole time period. Yeah. I mean, not only the sequious coverage and the, the ridiculous language people use, but also that I think a lot of people believe the Republican Party is now dead and gone. And in two years, that was not the case. And I'm I'm pretty sure that won't be the case either moving forward two years from now. Well, on that score, uh, let me play you a little ditty from outgoing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And the question I had listening to him was, who is his audience or who does he think his audience is for this remark? The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. Who is his audience for that comment? And by the way, who are those other powerful people, unnamed out powerful people? He be speaking about Ted Cruz and Hawley, right? But I guess the audience is, or what he's trying to do at least, is have the Republican Party move past Donald Trump. That's how I read it. Right. But but I mean, so that goes back to my question about McConnell's audience. Doing, it, yeah. yeah th- this is the way you think you move beyond Trump is to stick a knife in the corpse. I mean, I usually think that Mitch does a pretty good job in the Senate. So I, I don't know what that's about. I mean, maybe he just feels rattled by the event. But yeah, it doesn't pull it as a political matter. It doesn't make much sense to me. Contrasting the uh, Biden administration from the Obama administration, which he was a part of, of course, is a lot of the chatter in terms of first day and first hundred days revolves around illegal immigration and uh, putting that front and center in America again, even as they're suggesting that they will extend the travel bans uh, on Europe and elsewhere that Trump was prepared to relax and, and his uh, incoming uh, DHS secretary essentially suggesting that, uh, yes, we have this eight year plan to make everybody here a citizen. They've sent the signal to these caravans that are amassing uh, and making their way up to the southern border that there will be no deportations for the first hundred days, perhaps beyond. So so incentivizing people that let's get in as soon as we can get in here so we can get into that the queue for that eight year citizenship program. Is that really where Joe Biden wants to focus his political capital uh, in the first hundred days? Yeah, I think he does. And I think more than that, looking at the at least what people are reporting will be the executive orders. They seem like we're just going back to the Obama years. And you're right, enticing people to come here. I, I don't mind giving amnesty to dreamers, etc. But I do think that this is just lawlessness. First of all, 
everyone was constantly calling Donald Trump a Nazi and a fascist and all of this. But now we're going to have a president who simply ignores Congress and is just going to do all these kinds of things through executive orders. And no one is going to complain about it on the left. And no, no one in the media is going to complain about it, just as they did when Obama did it with the dreamers. So the hypocrisy bothers me, but the policy also bothers me. So I, I think that people forget the Republicans did very well in the House. They could very easily in two years win back the House and very easily in two years win back the Senate. And I think that if Biden decides to go this route, that's what might happen. Well, right. And and again, if there's uh, the issues we were talking about when border security was dominating the conversation, I think people uh, that were committing, I mean, you know, the Kate Steinle case being an example of this, of people in this country who everybody said shouldn't be in this country, they had multiple violent crimes in their background, and yet this, this country couldn't see its way fit to get them out and keep them out. And that was a source of real frustration. So, I mean, it seems to me this issue, depending on how it's handled, has the potential for to be for Joe Biden in 2022, what Obamacare was for Obama in 2010. Yeah, I think people misjudge the polls or, or the polls aren't right exactly on immigration. This is just the feeling I have where when you ask people, are you, you know, broadly, are you for immigration? Are you for helping young children who come here with their parents, you know, et cetera? Everyone says, yes, they are. Right. But I think that the American people, when, when you really dug into the polls, for instance, on allowing refugees from Syria here, there was a wide antagonism toward that idea. I think they misjudged the immigration issue. I don't think most Americans like the lawlessness of it. I never understood why you couldn't have a wall or stricter, even if you're pro-immigration like I am, why we can't have a better handle on who's coming and who's going and why they're here, etc. Yeah, I, I think it does. I don't know that it would be exactly like Obamacare. I think Obamacare was something special in the way that the legislation passed and all that went on in those days. But well, but yeah, I do think that it could be a big issue. Well, think about this additional layer, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a perfect analogy, but think about this additional right. layer, depending on where we are with all these lockdown politicians around the country, including the one in the White House, where we are with COVID and the policy response. Think about the issue of we're allowing people to illegally come into this country and I can't legally go to my local <laughs> restaurant. How about that? No, I mean, that that is, is certainly certainly something. I mean, yeah, COVID changes things and the lockdowns do change change the dynamics of a lot of things. I mean, I've been thinking recently about the, the Capitol riot and even in the summer, people are locked down and they're not interacting with other human beings really in the way we're used to. So they're in their little bubbles and that and a lot of anger can grow in those bubbles and a lot of conspiracy theories bloom there. So I think that if you're going to do something that sound, feels lawless, well, you're not allowed to go to a restaurant, that might yeah, that might change the dynamics of that, that issue. It was interesting that uh, Trump said in his farewell speech yesterday that uh, his greatest legacy, according to him, was that he took up the fights that people wanted him to take up. And that's what they haven't felt about the Republican Party, thus his ability to you know, run the table to the nomination and the presidency. And there's, you know, saying the words, but then there's also conveying it in such a way that you pass the authenticity test, that people believe you, there's an emotional connection. And, and I don't see really anybody in the Republican Party, maybe Ron DeSantis, because of what he's taken up and what he's endured, that is positioned to fill that void, that that part of the void. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know much about Ron DeSantis, for, meaning up close. I don't know what kind of a retail politician he is, et cetera. But I, obviously, I think he's done a great job down there. And um, so that might be a person. I think maybe a governor is a better way to go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if Trump hadn't acted the way he acted after he lost, you know, that his legacy would be not, especially his policy legacy is not, is pretty good. Right. I mean, if you believe yeah. in, you know, 
in the things that he spoke about, like not getting into a new war. I think that that's, that's something people actually care about far more than Republicans have thought about, you know, because of Iraq, it changed the, that, that whole dynamic. But, um, but yeah, I don't see anyone like that, not in the Senate at least. And I, I think that some people, uh, let's say Marco Rubio has tried to co-opt or, you know, appropriate that kind of populist language and stuff like that. But it's just, it's not, it doesn't feel authentic to me, especially when you've changed the way, you know, your ideological outlook so many times. So completely. David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and if I've invoked this observation from G.K. Chesterton once, I've done it a thousand times because it has such ongoing applicability And uh, that is when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. Which takes us to our next guest and his piece at uh, spectator.org. Believers Gonna Believe, the Young American Transition from Religion to Wokeness. Will Riley is an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, a historically black college. He's also the author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here again. So uh, as belief in uh, Christianity or Judaism or Islam, the major world religions, declines, particularly in the West, it gets replaced. In America, it's being replaced by politics, generally speaking, and um, on the left, perhaps the most rabid political church, if you will, by uh, woke politics. What I do really is look at the claims of, uh, what are they called, the new atheists about 10 years back, Sam Harris and so on, that to move towards civilization, what we really need to do is get rid of religion, this primitive capability of people to believe in anything, no matter how nonsensical. What I point out is that since the religion began to decline in the USA, we haven't seen people go on and get master's degrees in the sciences. What we've seen instead is fanatical belief in some pretty dubious things. I mean, we've seen the Occupy movement on the left and the QAnon movement on the right, massive surge in recreational drug use of some pretty hard stuff, a lot of acid mushrooms. And I think most notably, we've seen the general idea of wokeness, this belief that there is sort of one way to look at the secular world. The society is corrupt because of hidden racial bias. You know, there are people that I half-jokingly describe as prophets, Dr. Kendi and so on, that talk about this. There are sins, and you have to do things like implicit bias testing to look within yourself for sin. So the title of the piece, which I think is pretty accurate, is Believers Gonna Believe. There are people that want things to believe in or adhere to, and they're, they're not going to change that communism, for example, when they move away from traditional religion. Uh, right, and they're also not going to tolerate those who don't subscribe to that new religion, it would seem. And that uh, marks a um, distinction between... Uh, I don't know how Christians and Jews and and most Muslims uh, practice their faiths today. Well, I think that there's definitely not a lot of ecumenicalism in modern wokeness. And there is not really a strong idea of forgiveness. 
So the parallels are pretty exact. I mean, to some extent, the original sin or the devil of wokery is the belief that there is this hidden, subtle bias throughout society. Dr. Kendi, who I mentioned just now, argues that any gap in performance between two racial groups, blacks and whites, for example, or presumably whites and Asians, has to be due either to the inferiority of one of the groups, uh, genetically, essentially, or to prejudice, no matter how subtle that is, how hard to find that may be. So we can see the imperfection of society simply by looking at any gaps that may exist between whites and people of color, men and women, so on down the line. And the reality is that a whole bunch of things like average age and score on the aptitude tests and so on determine most of these gaps. But that's not the quasi-religious idea that they, they represent almost sin and they must be eliminated. So this is this is not a, a fringe inconsequential belief, at least not anymore. No, and the problem is, as you're describing it, is... Uh... Uh, it's punctuated by approximately the respect of or, or expression of independent thinking that was uh, exemplified by Branch Davidians. Uh, and uh, and so, again, they kneel before the state, really, and, and institutions that they otherwise control or want to control, and they are going to uh, impose, not persuade. So one of the questions that's been asked over and over again since the debate about modern religion really began. Something that was tossed at Nietzsche in the salons as well. In the absence of God, what do people worship? What do people put their faith in? And a very common replacement does seem to be the state. So in the absence of, you know, religious sin, which you yourself, through prayer, I suppose, if you're a spiritual person, or certainly communion with your priest, which you as an individual can handle within yourself, we have this idea of social sin. There, throughout everything, there's racism, sexism, the effects of colonialism. And in general, the thing that's seen as making those problems better is the government. And that sounds a little bizarre until you start to understand that there, there's one unifying idea here, which is taking that flawed, kind of fallen modern world and bringing it to the next stage of the dialectic, bringing it to a better secular point. There's still a heaven, but it's on Earth. Yes, well, it, the, the uh, yes, imitizing the eschaton, to borrow from William F. Buckley. Uh, well, let's pick it up there after the break with the real Will Riley talking about uh, this uh, uh, effort to perfect man, man by other men and where that ultimately leads. Will Riley is an associate professor of poli sci at Kentucky State U. He's the author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I think it was Andrew Spears who, uh, in his Devil's Dictionary, defined politics as a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. Can the conduct of public affairs for private advantage, as many observers have suggested, this uh, folly of private vice becoming public virtue, man being transformed by being installed in a public office. And that seems to me to be what is in part going on with the Jacobins on the left. 
Uh, for more on this, our continuing our conversation, rejoined by Will Riley, associate professor of poli sci, Kentucky State University, and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Uh, Will, that's where we left it off before the break. Let's pick it up there, this idea that uh, you look to the state as the church. So what you have is the state, through force, men and women are going to perfect other men and women and create heaven on earth. Uh, that's been tried. This is not new in the course of human history. How does it usually end? Well. Pure theocracies usually fail, and that's true whether they are secular or spiritual. And that, that's a bit of a glib line, but there's a very large amount of evidence illustrating it. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen a successful communist society. Uh, China's a mercantilist dictatorship. And that is, that is for the same reason that the papal states didn't work very well. If the basis of your society is a claim about something spiritual, not in the church house, but in the marketplace, that you insist has to be true, it's going to be a major problem for your society if it is not, in fact, true. Actually, there's an underlying problem even before that. If the claim yeah. is that it's true uh, and thus it must be adopted, then you are going to have to impose it. And, and this is where you really run into a problem is that you're forcing man-made truth uh, at the point of a gun. Yeah, well, those are, yeah, that, that's well put. Those are actually the two problems with communism, right, when we study this. The argument is that a perfectly functioning society would be this sort of dictatorship of the proletariat where everything is divided evenly among people. And the first problem is what you just said. In order to get to that state, a war is necessary. Ordinary upper middle class taxpayers, including me and you, aren't just going to give our land or family home or something like that to angry strangers. So that's problem one with communism. But problem two with communism, which is really, if you talk about Marxism, the, the inspiration for a lot of this woke stuff, problem two is that the basic ideas aren't true. If you look at the claim yeah. that gaps between people are automatically due to some kind of prejudice and not say to the fact more women prefer to run the home rather than working in business in many societies, not to the fact black people tend to be younger, not to things you can bluntly measure. Uh, if you look at that claim, there's a, at least as much evidence against it as there is for it. I mean, another issue, obviously, is if you if you argue that when the people, quote unquote, take everyone's land, they will then divide it equally. That fair process will happen. But that, that doesn't seem to be true either. So if you set up a society based on the, the assumption that these ideas have to be true, you often don't get heaven, you get Venezuela. Yeah, well put. So that's a, uh, a pretty uh, wide chasm between uh, what uh, we perceive heaven, heaven to be and, and what we know Venezuela is. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Something else you, you uh, reference in this piece that you wrote, sort of comparing wokeness to uh, organized religion is that uh, wokeness has um, erected holy places and identified martyrs. Explain. Yeah, well, this is one of the things I did in the piece. And to some extent, the spectator will publish funny satirical pieces. So some of this is a half joking comparison point to point. I said that Robin DeAngelo, who charges $30,000 for a talk, I'm honestly a bit jealous, is a prophet figure. And I mentioned, you know, the dead saints, Brother Malcolm and so on. But uh, one of the things that I did say very seriously is that there has an entire class of martyrs, if you look specifically at Black Lives Matter, for example, has developed that you are literally not supposed to question. So every time as a grad student observing or something like that, I've been to one of these marches, you hear the phrase, hands up, don't shoot. 
And that comes from the Michael Brown situation, from the claim that lawman Darren Wilson murdered this 18-year-old black kid who was helpless, wasn't defending himself. The reality is that these are two big men. They're in a physical fight, and Brown had unfortunately grabbed Wilson's gun, and he was shot during that struggle. Like, the entire idea of the story is nonsensical, but it's become part of canon. You saw this recently with uh, Jacob Blake as well. So there are, there are people whose names literally appear on shirts and on granite plinths at the sites of shootings or scuffles um, that are listed as canon by many people on the woke side. If I, during the debate, bring up the fact that the total number of unarmed brothers, unarmed black men killed by police in a typical year is about 10, someone will almost automatically start listing them. And we'll say something like, is that how you feel about Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, Jacob Blake, so on down the line. And there's a religious rather than practical component to that, because unfortunate though those cases may be, that's still the 10 guys. Yeah, right. Well, and and so now fold in, you know, the institutional, the the institutions, civic, uh, cultural business that are folding into this uh, new religion in quotation marks. I mean, is not is that not uh, the uh, blueprint for an authoritarian society? I mean, isn't that what we've seen in dictatorships in the Western world throughout history? Is that all of the cultural and civic institutions fold into the state? Well, yeah. One of the characteristics of both fascist and communist dictatorship, and fascism is a left wing rather than right wing philosophy in many, if not most cases, by the way. But one of those characteristics is the cooperation between powerful corporations and the state. I I don't think there's any doubt about that. But what I actually refer to this as in the article is the selling of indulgences. So during the corrupt era of the Catholic Church, which I suppose is my own church, There was a period where you could be, say, a courtesan or a mercenary knight. You would obviously do things we consider bad, but you didn't want to go to hell, so you would just go to your local bishop. A priest usually couldn't do it. And you would buy the right to commit a certain number of sins for gold. It's a real thing that happened historically. What we see now is the same sort of thing from business, where Nike, for example, which has been regularly accused of employing slave labor, will put out a special line of sneakers colored like the transgender flag, for example, or depicting the name of Mike Brown on on the inside of the gum sole. And the question, if you're a cynical guy, might be, were those made in a sweatshop? I mean, (laughs) does Nike really believe this? I'm not trying to make jokes, but I mean, is is Nike, are the transgender flags sold in China? What, What rights do you have if you happen to be trans in the People's Republic? So it's not that Nike really believes in post capitalist racially perfect societies, it's that they are buying the ability not to have their plants attacked or not to be criticized on Twitter by doing this, by making these gestures. He is Will Riley, Associate Professor of Poli Sci at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Glad to be on. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. All right, a little uh, palate cleanser in the form of um, restaurant activism. But before I get to that, this is a fun story. Chinese restaurant in Montreal that has gone viral for its very honest menu 
Ant Die is the Chinese restaurant, and somebody tweeted uh, the menu with descriptions that uh, the staff there has put to some of the dishes on the menu. The orange beef is, quote, not that good uh, as compared to the restaurant's general Tao chicken and the uh, sweet and spicy pork, the uh, sweet and spicy pork strips, which the owner is not a huge fan of, quoting on the menu, because it's a different version than he ate when he went to university in China. <laughs> Tweet uh, also showed descriptions for the satay, be- uh, satay sauce beef, uh, which is which the owner, quote, did not have a chance to try, unquote, when he wrote the description. Another dish, which the owner says is very tasty by comparison. And uh, proprietor of the restaurant just says, you know, we just thought sort of this sort of level of honesty, give people some idea what they're ordering uh, would be perhaps helpful and maybe a little bit funny. And uh, now the attention they've gotten, including from this show, will get, has uh, generated more customers for their restaurants. So good for them. And speaking of customers for restaurants, particularly if you live in a lockdown or state like, say, Illinois, where I live or a lockdown or city within a state like, say, Chicago, Illinois, where I live. I don't know. I don't think I've mentioned it on this show. About three months ago, the end of October, a friend of mine and a couple of friends got together and said, let's do something to help the restaurants that are shut down, particularly those that are courageous enough to buck the shutdown and stay open. These are mostly suburban restaurants, not exclusively. And so we started on Tuesdays just uh, gathering uh, a couple of dozen people and say we're pick a restaurant uh, contact the owner say we're bringing in a couple dozen three dozen people four dozen in some cases just to help you guys you know basically support uh, and help put food on the table for the people who put food on our table and it's really taken off so much so that we're uh, already merchandising rebeldiners.com get t-shirts get hat and uh, open a chapter if you're in a lockdown or state if you don't have the freedom of uh, floridian for example We know that uh, a couple of chapters have opened around the country, including one in Huntsville, Alabama, we heard just yesterday when we were at one of our Rebel Diners lunch. Uh, So it's not, uh, you know, perhaps having the impact of uh, Dave Portnoy's uh, Barstool Sports Relief Fund. We didn't get 500 grand from Aaron Rodgers, but it is helpful to these individual independent restaurants. And Chicago and Chicago suburbs has a ton of individual independent one-off restaurants. And uh, it's been great. It's been great for the community. It's been great for the restaurants. It's been great for the wait staff. We give great tips. That's one of the emphases emphasi- uh, uh, of, of the lunches is, make, yes, we get a couple people to sponsor the lunch, but everybody throw in so that uh, the wait staff gets a, a very, very handsome tip and uh, just do what we can while to protect lives and livelihoods while people are under the thumb of hoods in public office like they are in Chicago and Illinois. RebelDiners.com, if you want to consider doing something along these lines, particularly, as I said, if you're in one of those states or cities lorded over by lockdowners. Thank you for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Stay informed so you can be courageous and we can live free. We'll see you tomorrow. This is The Dan Prof Show.